Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhuku and Rachel Makura. In our top stories, the trial of Shea Dewani begins in the city of Cape Town in South Africa today. The trial of four Somalis facing charges related to a terrorist attack on Westgate Shopping Mall in the Kenyan capital Nairobi has resumed and the threat of hunger is tracking Ebola across affected West African nations as the disease kills farmers and their families, drive workers drives workers from the fields and creates food shortages. In economic news, the five the size of Kenya's economy increases and in sports news, the 2014 African Women's Championship kicks off this weekend. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Somali troops backed by AU peacekeepers have recaptured the last major port held by militant group Al-Shabaab. Somali military officials say they are in full control of the port town of Baware. They say the situation in the area is calm. Militiamen now reported to have fled before the forces reached the town. Meanwhile, a Malian jihadist close to the al-Qaeda-linked militia Mujahu has claimed responsibility for an attack that killed nine UN peacekeepers in the country's rest of North Friday's attack. The deadliest against the UN mission in Mali targeted a contingent of peacekeepers from Niger. The UN mission in Mali says the convoy of peacekeepers was on a supply run in the northeastern Maneka Asongo corridor when they were ambushed by men on motorbikes. Mujahu joined forces with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghrib and Ansadine, another Islamist group, in 2012 to take control of much of Mali's desert north, including the three main towns of Kidal. Gao and Timbuktu. Talks between warring factions and South Sudan have once again been put on hold. The talks, which have been repeatedly interrupted since they began in January, aim to find a lasting solution to the conflict which broke out on December 15th between factions loyal to President Silva Kiir and his former Vice President Rahik Machar. Michael Makawi, chief negotiator for the South Sudan government, says the negotiations have been called off by IGAD but would resume on the 16th of this month. Previous ceasefire agreements have all been broken and efforts to form a unity government have so far failed, with the international community accusing the leaders of being insincere in their claims to seek a peaceful resolution. Meanwhile, the United Nations says the country's food crisis is the worst in the world and aid workers have warned of the risk of famine. 
The South African government says it's at the mercy of the Nigerians when it comes to dealing with the victims of the Lagos church collapse. South Africa says families of those who died in the tragedy have an indefinite wait for the return of the bodies which continue to decompose. The government adds that it has decided to have a frank discussion with the families about the state the bodies will be in when they are returned. Earlier, reports said some mortuaries had no refrigeration and fans were being used to keep the bodies cool. However, the Nigerian government denied this. The post-mortems of the 116 victims have been completed. 84 South Africans are among them. Deputy Judge President Jeanette Travasso will preside over the trial of alleged murder mastermind Shreen Dewani, which starts in the Western Cape High Court in South Africa today. Dewani, a British citizen, allegedly orchestrated the November 2010 murder of his wife Annie when they were on honeymoon in South Africa. He faces charges of murder, robbery with aggravating circumstances, kidnapping and defeating the ends of justice. Berenice Moss reports. The NPA and defense lawyers have agreed that the entire court proceedings may not be recorded electronically. Director of Public Prosecutions in the Western Cape, Rodney Lecoq, says the media will be allowed to take still photographs and silent video clips on Monday. He says they're concerned that unregulated media access to Dewani may impact negatively on his mental health. The businessman arrived in South Africa in April following a lengthy extradition battle in the UK. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The family of Annie Dewani say the past four years have been utter torture for them. Last night, Annie's father and his brother, Vinod and Ashuk Hindocha, briefed the media in the coastal city of Cape Town, South Africa. The high-profile murder trial of British businessman Shreen Dewani begins in the Western Cape High Court today. He allegedly orchestrated the murder of his 28-year-old wife, Annie, in November 2010, while the couple was on honeymoon in Cape Town. Diwani faces charges of murder, kidnapping, robbery with aggravating circumstances and obstructing the administration of justice. Berenice Moss reports. The families of Annie and Shrian Diwani will for the first time come face to face in a South African court this morning when the trial gets underway. The murder sent shockwaves around the world. A young bride killed while on honeymoon during an alleged township tour. During last night's media briefing, the Hindocha brothers were visibly emotional and teary-eyed throughout the media conference. The family will be staying in Cape Town during the trial, which has been set down for just over two months. And his father, Vinod Hindocha, broke down as he spoke of his little girl. This is a terrible day. It has been a period of torture for our family, and we have missed Annie a lot. Now that I'm here, all I ask for is the full story and justice. I'm confident that South Africa will conduct a fair and open trial 
of Sri Rendawan. I'm grateful to many, many thousands of people around the world, particularly from South Africa and UK, who has been supporting us throughout this time. Now it's up to the South African legal system to hear the case and obtain the full story of how my little daughter died. Annie's uncle Ashok says thus far the spotlight has been on Shri and Dewani and not what actually happened to their daughter. We are hoping for truth. What happened that night that, that night in that vehicle? Why did one little girl has to be, had to be shot? The four men came out alive. Those are the questions that run runs around our head. Uh, why did these two men need even a gun to scare a little girl like that? I'm sure she was scared to death. All they had to do is boo and she would have probably died. Why should I? Why? The NPA and Dewani's defense lawyers have agreed that court proceedings may not be recorded electronically. The media will be allowed limited access to take still photographs of the accused and silent video clips. And his uncle says they have full confidence in the South African judicial system. I'm sure the court has its reasons. There are various witnesses around the globe who might be coming in. And it would not do this uh, trial good if they are listening to what's happening in the court before they are being questioned. I think that is one of the major reasons. And I full respect for that. The state has been mum on who their witnesses are, but it's expected that the man who fingered Dewani as being the mastermind is expected to take the stand. Taxi driver Zola Tongo and Mziwa Madoda Kwabe, as well as Kolile Mgeni, are currently serving lengthy jail terms for their role in the murder. A criminal law expert says the courts should err on the side of caution when relying on the evidence of accomplices. Attorney William Booth. The state will be relying to a large extent on accomplices. So there the court has to be very cautious when it you know, deals with accomplice evidence. People who have themselves admitted committing a crime, who have themselves acknowledged that they are um, criminals involved with serious crimes. Booth also says the issue of whether murder-accused Shrian Dewani is receiving preferential treatment cannot be overlooked being flown over from the United Kingdom to South Africa at state expense. Why did that happen? I mean, many other people are are face extradition, uh, uh, you know, applications and whatever decisions are made, they may have to go over on their own or people are deported from countries, they have to then pay their own costs. You know, and and again, this whole issue of him being held at um, Falkenberg Hospital. Some people say, well, hang on, he's getting some special treatment there. And that's why I talk about fair trial that everybody must be fairly treated. doesn't matter where you come from, whether you're rich or poor. Sheehan Dewani has denied any wrongdoing and has negated his role in the murder. He has been treated at Falkenberg Psychiatric Hospital since his arrival from the United Kingdom in April. Western Cape Deputy Judge President Janet Traverso will preside over the case. I'm Berenice Moss in Cape Town. 
More than 5,000 military veterans in South Africa will receive new and decent houses across the country over the next three years. This is according to Human Settlements Minister Lindiwe Sisulu, who says most of the veterans are living in squalor. Sisulu says the rollout of houses will form part of the 2014 International Habitat Day today. More than 5,000 military veterans will receive new and decent houses across the country over the next three years. This is according to Human Settlements Minister Lindiwe Susulu. Susulu who says most of the veterans Susulu says the rollout of houses will form part of the 2014 International Habitat Day this Monday. Mercedes Percent reports. World Habitat Day has been designated by the United Nations every year on the first Monday of the month of October. Human Settlements Ministerial Spokesperson Ndibuo Mabaya says the theme for this year's Habitat Day, which is to be launched at the Fluhof Estate in Johannesburg, is restoring the dignity of military veterans through human settlements. According to the Department of Military Veterans, there is about 5,600 military veterans who still require decent accommodation. The minister has declared that uh, in a space of three years, those more than 5,000 military veterans must all be housed and housed decently. So what we'll be launching on Monday is a show house of how their houses will look like. Beautiful houses, two-bedroom, dining room, kitchen, carport, garden. That's a feat for people who have done so much for this country. Um, the houses will also be launched across all the provinces. And uh, we believe that in three years we can be able to make sure that all of them are housed decently. Mabaya says the building of decent houses for military veterans is a partnership between human settlements and various stakeholders in the private sector. DA spokesperson on human settlements, Makashule Ghana, says while restoring the dignity of military veterans through human settlements should be celebrated and welcomed, it should benefit all military veterans across the political spectrum. What's crucial, we must look at all military veterans and we must not politicize these houses and only giving to only those uh, military veterans that are aligned to the ruling party. These houses should not go to MK veterans, but it must go to all military veterans, including those from other formations like the PAC and, and ASAPO. The initiative by the Human Settlements Minister has also been welcomed by PAC President Alton Mpeti. He says the building of proper housing for military veterans is long overdue, saying many veterans were never even compensated. Most of these people were not being paid their money, and uh, some of their properties, they tried to buy houses, they had some bonds, and the banks repossessed those houses. We had uh, one case two months back where one of our veterans was taken out of his house by the bank. And it's very much unfortunate about that. But we appreciate it even if it's long overdue. The PAC president says he hopes the minister will speed up the process and stick to her three-year deadline of building proper human settlements for all military veterans, especially those who are still living in shacks across the country. Mercedes Basen, Parliament. Now... Our question to you today is, as we celebrate World Habitat Day, is Africa doing enough for its citizens and what more can be done? 
Email us your views and thoughts to info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica or at ChannelAfrica1. Do you think, is Africa doing enough for its citizens and what more can be done for Africa? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The South African Communist Party General Secretary Blade Zimande has challenged opposition economic freedom fighters leader Julius Malema to come clean on how much taxpayers' money went into his pockets that resulted in him owing SARS $1.6 million and stopped shouting at President Zuma to repay money used for the security upgrades at his Ngandla home. Ruling African National Congress Treasurer General Zuelim Kize said... Zuma will run his full term and the party will continue supporting both the president and speaker of the National Assembly, Balegambete. Zamande, Mkize and Kosatu's first deputy president shared the stage during the SACP's Red October launch held at Hammersdale in the country's Gwazul Natal province. Vusi Makosini reports. SACP supporters painted the Hammersdale Stadium red as the party took this year's Red October launch to the Hammersdale Township. Party supporters who packed the stadium were treated with revolutionary songs and dance by members of Umkontuwesi's Military Veterans Association. Speaking during the launch, ANC Treasurer General Zulim Kiza said those who think that President Jacob Zuma will not run his full term must think twice. Even if they blame President Jacob Zuma and his deputy Cyril Ramaphosa, we will continue to defend them. Even if they file a motion to try and remove Speaker of the National Assembly, Balegambete, we will defend her. Even those spy tapes they are talking about, there is nothing that is going to end up taking the President to court about those tapes. We elected Mshuluz to become President of the ANC in 2012 and we are not shaken. He will run his entire term as president. We also elected him as state president in Meanwhile, SSCP General Secretary Bail Zimande accused EFF leader Julius Malema to have milled taxpayers millions of rents, which Zimande says is the reason Malema owes SARS 16 million rent for tax evasion. Including Lendola Malema, by the way. Even what Malema is calling for, to say to President Zuma, pay back the money. Who should pay back the money? Malema owes 16 million rands to the taxmen. Those who are financial experts say, if you owe 16 million rands, it means you gained 50 million rands. Why did Malema got so much money as he never worked in his entire life? Cholos never asked for security upgrade at his home. But we as governments necessary to provide security upgrades at his home. Malema is trying to deviate the nation from the focus as he is going back to court for tax invasion. Shifting his focus to the launch of the direct October campaign, Zimande calls for the transformation of the banking sector. He accused giant commercial banks of not supporting the very small business people who bank with them.
according to Zimande, bank charges in the country are very high, while cellular network operators, on the other hand, are also charging cell phone users exorbitant amount. I come never can manifest Meanwhile, Kiza told SACP supporters in high time that the government establish a bank that will be responsible and dedicated to small businesses, especially those who can't access funding from commercial banks. Vusi Makosini, Hamaste. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The trial of four Somalis facing charges related to a terrorist attack on the Westgate shopping mall in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, has resumed with the suspects claiming that they were tortured while in prison where they are remanded as their trial continues. James Shimangula reports. Two lawyers defending four Somalis facing charges derived from a terrorist attack on Westgate Shopping Mall in Nairobi have claimed that their clients were tortured while in prison custody. The Somalis are Mohammed Ahmed Abdi, Liban Abdullah Omar, Hussein Hassan Mustafa, and Adan Mohammed Dek Ibrahim. Claims of torture were made by two of their lawyers, Chacha Mwita and Mwaniki Gachomo, before a Nairobi court. Mwita told reporters shortly after the brief appearance of the suspects that their clients had been tortured. Somebody was trying to get revenge for unknown fears or hatred, Chacha Mwita said, and continued, and I quote, our clients say they are scorned while being tortured, Mwita concluded. End of quote. Mwita's colleague, Mwaniki Gashomo, speaking to me exclusively outside the trial court, expounded on the torture claims. My clients were assaulted by the prison authorities. And the prison authorities say that uh, they were enforcing an order for them to wear some uniform which they refuse, so up to now we, do, we cannot say with certainty what transpired. The question that arises is whether or not there are regulations requiring suspects on trial to wear prison uniform, which are usually worn by prisoners that have been convicted by courts. There are no regulations that an, uh, an accused person should wear a prison uniform, and uh, up to now we do not see them in, in any prison uniform. Gashomo says the torture claim is being pursued by officials of the Kenya National Human Rights Organization. This matter being investigated by Kenya National Human Rights and Independent uh, Medical Legal will have it for the outcome of uh, the investigations. The case against the Somalis was set for mention on October 8th by Nairobi resident magistrate Dorini Mulecho. 
It is then that the trial magistrate Daniel Ochenja, who has been out of the country, is expected to resume work. Gashomo told me that it is this week that officials of the Kenya Human Rights Organization are to present a report to Magistrate Ochenja on the alleged torture claims by the Somalis. Reverting back to the injuries sustained by the Somalis during the alleged torture, Gashomo said. There were several injuries on the limbs, hands had injuries on a cut. They had bandages and uh, walking in the limb could not walk uh, straight. On our part is what we got from the accused person. They were injured by the guards. The trial of the four Somalis is one of the nearly a dozen terror-related trials pending in the various courts in the Kenyan capital Nairobi and the coastal city of Mombasa. The trials are set to be heard on various dates stretching to the end of the year and the beginning of next year. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanyula. The threat of hunger is tracking Ebola across affected West African nations as the disease kills farmers and their families, drives workers from the fields and creates food shortages. In the worst-hit states of Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea, Ebola is ravaging their food-producing breadbasket regions, preventing planting and harvesting and disrupting supply routes and markets. The UN's World Food Programme and Food and Agriculture Organization say border and market closures, quarantines and movement restrictions and widespread fear of Ebola have led to food scarcity, panic buying and price increases, especially in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Dr Mboya Kidero, who is the president of the Coca-Cola Africa Foundation, says it is possible that the countries affected by the virus may face total collapse. That is certainly a risk, and certainly we've heard that from the authorities in each of those countries. I believe the president of Guinea said as much. You know, Ebola is not just having an impact on the health of the citizens of these countries. It is having a huge impact on the economy of these countries. If you think about it, Ebola has to some degree paralyzed normal operations. You know, the schools in these countries are closed. Many of the businesses are unable to operate as they normally would. You know, industries like agriculture have been affected. And then, you know, the Ebola crisis is actually taking up a lot of the resources that government would otherwise spend on development. So, you know, while this may be sustainable in the short term, if this becomes a longer term and a much bigger crisis than we see right now, then yes, these countries do face potential political and economic ramifications. And we heard at the United Nations General Assembly, President Barack Obama of the United States describing the Ebola outbreak as a growing threat to regional and global security. Do you foresee such far-reaching consequences? You know, the issue is, if you think of the worst-case scenario, the absolute worst-case scenario where we're talking millions of people affected, you know, that is going to include all the key structures that hold our countries together, the military, the police you know, the, the school system, once those start to break down, then, you know, you face a situation where without those systems, anarchy starts to take hold. And I think that is what he's referring to when he says, you know, this could become a global security situation. In Liberia, we hear, you know, there is a lot of dissatisfaction, uh, you know, a lot of unrest within the community about the impact that this is having, a sense among people that should the government be doing more which may or may not be a a fair assessment, but that, you know, when people are under siege, that's how they feel. 
And so that restiveness could bubble over and become a security risk. And, of course, the strain that the outbreak will have on African economies too. Absolutely. All of that, you know, as we know, and we've seen with, you know, with the Arab Spring in other parts of Africa, when people are faced with economic issues, that tends to boil over into security issues. And the UN has recently set up a headquarters in Accra in Ghana that they call the Ebola Emergency Response. Do you know what they will be doing there? Is it to coordinate the response? And will the Coca-Cola Africa Foundation be involved in this as well? I believe that this body that has been created is around coordinating the response, giving the, the different organizations a central point you know, from which to operate. It will also be an, a body that will enable the coordination of the various donations that are coming in and ensure that those donations are going to where they are most needed. You know, the the Coca-Cola Africa Foundation, we will continue to work primarily at the community level in terms of the donations, etc. But certainly from a policy, from a thought leader level, we will be very ready to work with this new organization in Accra. Dr. Mboya Kidero, president of the Coca-Cola Africa Foundation, on the line from Nairobi, Kenya, speaking to Channel Africa's Khusiko Dingake. It's 8.28 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The United Nations World Food Programme, WFP, and the child agency, UNICEF, have wrapped up their 25th joint mission to deliver life-saving supplies in South Africa. The mission has reached more than 500,000 people in Patai, a settlement in Jongle State, taking us through what has been achieved through the joint response operation is WFP spokesperson Elizabeth Byers. The World Food Programme and UNICEF uh, wrapped up their 25th joint emergency mission and they delivered life-saving supplies in very out-to-reach and remote region of South Sudan, for instance, Jongle, Unity and Upper Nile. We have sent and deployed those emergency response teams in places which are really remote. The team set up distribution sites from scratch, working with little or very few infrastructure and usually sleeping in tents. They have identified clear and managed airdrop zones, registered tens of thousands of beneficiaries, and conduct large-scale distribution of food. Elizabeth, in the past few months, aid agencies in South Sudan were battling to contain disease outbreaks such as cholera and malaria. Could you perhaps just tell us, through your efforts, how did you help in containing the outbreak of such epidemics and how has the situation improved in South Sudan? The health situation in South Sudan also is of concern and together with food assistance and nutrition supplements, UNICEF provides also basic health support. They immunize children against polio and measles and they also distribute sanitation and hygiene supplies. So uh, the both agencies are complementary. WFP provide the food and UNICEF provide nutrition screening, 
treatment as well as information on nutrition. So we can help the children and there are many, many children in need of assistance. Only in Pate, which is a settlement in Jonglei State, there are 30,000 children and adults registered for assistance. That was Elizabeth Byers, spokesperson for the United Nations World Food Programme on the line from Geneva in Switzerland, talking to Jane Matibula. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Nigeria's army extends a travel ban imposed on Borno State by 24 hours. A Malian jihadist close to the Al-Qaeda-linked militia Mujahu claims responsibility for an attack that killed nine UN peacekeepers in the country's rest of north. And British murder accused Shreen Dewani arrives at the Western Cape High Court in South Africa for the start of his trial this morning. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. With the support and financial assistance of the European Union, the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies is implementing a global campaign which seeks to promote and protect the rights of migrants. It is estimated that there are 232 million migrants worldwide. However, the basic protection of their rights along the migratory routes is often not ensured. For more on the IFRC's initiative, we're now joined on the line by the communication officer Luvini Ranasinghe. Good morning, Luvini, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thanks for having me this morning. Now, Luvini, firstly, can you take us through the plight of migrants and what are the concerns for the IFRC? Okay, well, uh, as you rightfully said, uh, there's a lot of migrants around the world and this action itself is targeting uh, migrant domestic workers and the victims of human trafficking. So it's a 42-month project co-funded by the European Union to be implemented uh, across the world in countries. So far, 40, uh, 14 countries have been selected. And we will be uh, targeting these uh, vulnerable migrants to work with the civil society organizations to promote the human rights of migrants as well as to make sure that they, they have enhanced access to social services in the selected countries. The countries have been selected uh, in a set of, uh, following a set of clear criteria, including the relevance of human trafficking and labor migration issues at national level and the complementarity with other EU-funded projects in the fields of action as well as uh, the capacity of the International Federation of Red Cross and its member national societies to implement this project to enhance the human rights of migrants in these countries. Now, Lavini, in your view, is there enough understanding on what the rights of migrants are? Well, it's, it's basically uh, to make sure that all uh, migrants, regardless of their legal status, do have uh, access to all social services and they are well integrated to the societies and they are not seen as an obstacle, but they are seen as normal human beings to make sure that all migrants in these countries do have 
the same access to social services as well as the same uh, status as normal people to make their lives, to bring their lives to normality. That's what the action is all about. Now, how do you how do you manage to identify um, vulnerable migrants, especially those without legal status? Well, the the project is uh, I have to specifically say that this rights of migrants in action is a project which has two very specific criteria. The two mig- uh, the two sector of migrants that we are going to work with are victims of human trafficking and. Uh, migrant domestic workers. So let me a uh, bit uh, talk about the countries that, that we are going to work in. In America, we'll be working in Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Honduras. In Africa, we'll be working in Ethiopia, Zimbabwe. In Asia Pacific, we'll be working in Indonesia, Nepal, and Thailand. And in Europe, we'll be working in Kazakhstan, Russian Federation, and in Tajikistan. In the Middle East and North Africa, we'll be working in Jordan, Lebanon, and and Morocco. So in these countries that we are targeting uh, victims of human trafficking and uh, migrant domestic workers through civil society organizations, we believe that the civil society organizations in these countries play a humongous role in uh, working with and working for the very most vulnerable migrants and to identify the most vulnerable migrants and to make sure that their rights are being uh, recognized and that they have access to social services. Now, Lavini, the countries that you've mentioned, um, is there a particular reason why these countries were the targets in terms of your your uh, rights of migrants in action campaign? Is- yes, uh, uh, these countries, well, it's, it's a, it's a 42-month project, so according uh, to the time availability and the budget availability, we decided that we will uh, approximately target 15 countries. So far, we have identified the 14 countries. As I said uh, uh, at the beginning, uh, taking into consideration the relevance of human trafficking and labor migration issues in these countries. So we have, uh, along with the, with the European Union, and uh, we have done a clear mapping of the situation of migrants. And then uh, to also understand the situation of civil society organizations in these countries and the other projects which are already implemented in these countries to find similarities and synergies and to make sure that the action could bring more effect to the most uh, vulnerable migrants. So these are the reasons to select these uh, 14 countries. Uh, and in, in, in future, if the work goes well, I think there's a possibility to extend uh, the project of, after the 42 months to see how, how well the project has been extended and to see what is the next step. Now, Lavini, before I let you go, how do you measure, how will you be able to measure the success of the Rights of Migrants Action Campaign after yeah. that process? Okay. Uh, well, uh, if you give me two minutes, I'll explain to you exactly the expected uh, results uh, of this project. As we said, we'll be working for 42 hour, months uh, uh, in this project, which has three very uh, specific components. The first component is the coordination. At the end of these 42 months, we want to make sure that there's a harmonized and a coordinated approach to civil society organizations towards the protection of human rights of migrants. 
and make sure that these civil society organizations across the globe, that 14 countries we mentioned, do work together and they have a platform that they can learn from each other and they answer to different questions in the different countries, but they have the peer-to-peer -peer learning that they discuss the the challenges, the successes, and so that approach is harmonized and coordinated. The second component of the project is access to services. So we want to make sure after, at the end of the project that in these countries that the, the migrant success to social services are enhanced and through the small-scale projects of the civil society organizations, direct social assistance and protection are provided to migrants and their families, particularly in relation to migrant domestic workers and the victims of human trafficking. And thirdly, last but not least, we want to make sure that the capacities of these civil society organizations are strengthened after the 32 months that they could sustain and they could make sure that uh, with the expertise they gain during this project, they can continue the work that they've been doing for the, uh, for the, for the 42 months with us uh, for the betterment of the vic uh, victims of human trafficking and the domestic uh, migrant workers. Lavini, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. That was Lavini Rana Singe, spokesperson for the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, joining us on the line from Geneva in Switzerland. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.40 Central African time. And we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, following a review and recalculation of Kenya's economic data, the size of the economy of the East African country has increased by more than 25%, earning the country a middle-income status. The new economic survey has also placed Kenya as East Africa's biggest market and Africa's fourth-largest economy after Nigeria, South Africa and Angola. But according to economic analysts in Nairobi, Kenya's new economic standing has its own challenges and could disqualify the country from continued financial and trade concessions enjoyed by many low-income countries. Mike Gikonyo reports. Following the release of the new national economic data, commonly known as economic rebasing, Kenya's economic standing has drastically changed and has moved from low-income country to that of middle-income status. It has now placed Kenya as the single largest market in East Africa and Africa's fourth largest economy after Nigeria, South Africa and Angola. According to the new economic review, the size of Kenya's economy has increased by nearly 25% in the level of gross domestic product. Other African countries that have also revised and recalculated the size of their economy includes Nigeria, which has jumped to the top of Africa's economy by size. But what is the meaning and objective of the rebasing the country's economic data? Kenya's Minister for Economic Development and Devolution, Anwaigoro. Rebasing of national account series simply means replacing the old base year used for compiling the constant price estimates to a new and more recent base year. In our case, this involved changing the base year from the year 2001 to 2009. 
Kenyans will be just as poor or just as wealthy as they were a year ago. All that the new GDP estimates tell us is that the economy is a lot worth more than we had thought. It tells us nothing about how that wealth is distributed. However, according to economic experts in Nairobi, Kenya attained the new economic status two years ago. Economic analyst Professor Rainer. Kenya attained lower middle income country status in 2012, and that's based on the rebased gross national income per capita measures. According to the review and recalculation of the country's economic data, Kenya's economic standing has been heavily influenced by three economic sectors which have continuously depicted accurate reflection of the country's economic performance. They include communication sector, transport, general infrastructure, and real estate. But none of the old sectors have disappeared, although they carry less weight. And according to a recent economic survey, Kenya's economy grew by 4.7% last year, a pace slower than that of neighboring countries. However, the roles of manufacturing, telecommunications and services have gained more prominence under the rebasing system in which the mining sector makes a grand entry. President Urukunyata says the country's economic performance remains resilient, growth remains satisfactory, and the outlook is bright. Our economy remains resilient, growth remains satisfactory, and indeed the outlook is bright. Our macroeconomic indicators like inflation, interest rates, and the exchange rate remain largely stable. This reflects continued prudence in fiscal and monetary policy management. The macroeconomic indicators demonstrate that the underlying economic fundamentals of our country remain sound and indeed will continue to strengthen with coherent economic strategy that we are now implementing. We share the same economic prospects with our development partners who continue to provide us with support to complement our own resources as a country. We have, as many of you are aware, received support from China for various projects including the Standard Gauge Railway and more recently our European Union and World Bank partners have renewed their support for Kenya for the next five years with a total financial support amounting to about 500 billion Kenya shillings. But economic analysts in Nairobi have been increasingly worried that the new economic standing for Kenya may generate more trade challenges than anticipated. The country might lose the trade and global financial concessions enjoyed by low-income countries. Economic analyst Professor Reiner. One of the questions likely to emerge from this launch is whether the results of this rebasing exercise will affect Kenya's access to the World Bank's group finance and knowledge resources. They will not. Although becoming a middle-income country is good for Kenya's standing as an investment destination, it was likely to come with its own challenges. There is a general feeling that the country could lose its eligibility for grants, concession loans and debt write-off when its gross domestic product per capita rises above 1,036 US dollars, threshold that the World Bank has set for middle-income nations. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoko.
Swaziland has regressed by three points to 120 in the World Bank ease of doing business 2014 rankings. Last year, Swaziland was ranked 120 out of 189 economies. The World Bank doing business 2014 understanding regulations for small and medium enterprises was the 11th in a series of annual reports investigating the regulations that enhance business activities and those that constrain it. The bank says the doing business representative, or rather presented quantitative indicators, on business regulations and protection of property rights that could be compared across 189 economies from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. And this was over time. Following a review and recalculation of Kenya's economic data, the size of the economy of the East African country has increased by more than 25%, earning the country a middle income status. Mwaiki Konyo. Following the release of the new national economic data, commonly known as economic rebasing, Kenya's economic standing has drastically changed and has moved from low-income country to that of middle-income status. It has now placed Kenya as the single largest market in East Africa and Africa's fourth largest economy after Nigeria, South Africa and Angola. Meanwhile, the Zambian guaja is among the three African currencies listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, where investors, importers and exporters will now seek to protect themselves against currency fluctuations in the three countries. The listing of the guaja, together with the Kenyan shilling and the Nigerian naira were launched at a ceremony held at the JSC in Johannesburg on Friday. A signing ceremony for a major power project to boost Zimbabwe's power generation has been postponed as the country braces for more power cuts due to maintenance works at its main generator. Zimbabwe Power Corporation says the penning of a 1.1 billion US dollar deal with China Sino Hydro has been rescheduled to a later date. Ghana's National Petroleum Corporation Cosmos Energies, meanwhile, set to sign a $400 million firming agreement with Senegal state-owned hydrocarbon firm Petrosen and Timis Corporation to take a 60% stake in the Kaya St. Louis offshore blocks that they operate in. Financial indicators this hour, the U.S. dollar trades at 11.32 South African Rand at uh, 9.21 Buda, 6.30 Zambia, 0.61 Britain, 7.7 Euro, Gold 1.187, Platinum 1.199, Brand Crude 9.205. Economic Update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. morning sports fans and starting off with football news the 2014 african women's championship gets underway this saturday in the namibian capital vintook eight teams will be vying for the coveted trophy and one of the three spots available for the 2015 fifa women's world cup set to take place next year in canada south africa has been grouped in group b also known as the group of death together with cameroon algeria as well as ghana 
Dumisani Mbogane, Sasol Sponsorship Specialist, says they are excited as the main sponsors of the team and they are backing the team all the way. With the news that Africa had been afforded a third sport uh, at the 2015 FIFA World Cup, Sasol Banyana Banyana has once again an opportunity to rewrite uh, history books and make South Africa proud by qualifying for this prestigious event. If you look at the stats that in 2008 they were finalists, lost to Equatorial Guinea. 2010 they were third. Uh, 2012 they were finalists. 2014 the only way that they can make us happy is by winning the tournament and not just qualifying for playing at the World Cup, but to win the tournament for the first time. They've uh, come very close on many occasions and uh, I think having seen the preparations, they do have that capability to do that. Meanwhile, Zambia senior and women's national team coach Charles Boalia has announced his squad of 21 players for the African Women's Championship to be hosted in Namibia. Zambia, who are placed in Group A along with hosts Namibia, Ivory Coast, as well as Nigeria, will play the opening match of the competition against Namibia at the Sam Nojoma Stadium this Saturday. Zambia's second match is scheduled for Tuesday, the 14th of October against Nigeria at the same venue, while the third and final group stage match against Ivory Coast will Will take place at the Independence Stadium three days later. As part of their preparation, Zambia hosted South Africa and Cameroon in friendly matches in Lusaka. They lost 4-0 to South Africa and played two matches with Cameroon, losing 2-0 in the first match played at Winland Stadium on the 1st of October before recording a goalless draw in the second match played at the Nongoloma Stadium this past Saturday. FIFA President Seb Blatter has endorsed Amaju Pinak as the new president of the Nigerian Football Federation. Pinak, who is Delta State Sports Commission chairman, as well as the Delta Football Association boss, was elected into the position on Tuesday. China Africa's Tony Ubani reports from Lagos in Nigeria. Blatter said in a letter to Pinak, I wish you good luck, strength and every success to your new role and look forward to meeting you soon. His comments are fears that Nigeria were heading for a ban as a result of FIFA not uh, ratifying the election. Football's world governing body, uh, FIFA, briefly suspended Nigeria in July when the NFF president, Aminu Megare, was removed from office. On to rugby news, six players are lined up to make international debut for Kenya at the 2014-2015 HSBC World Series opening leg in Gold Coast, Australia, set to get underway this weekend. The team is currently in South Africa for their five-day training camp to fine-tune They play under head coach Paul True. Francis Mutegi has more details. Homeboys trio of Bush, Mwale, Augustin Lugonzo and Michael Wangela as well as KCB's duo of Jacob Oje and Oliver Mangeni together with Alex Olaba from Strathmore University have been named in the touring squad. Andrew Amonde has been retained as the captain and will lead the youthful team that is comprising players who impressed the national sevens circuit at the Safari Sevens in Nairobi last week. The team left the country on Thursday evening to South Africa for a training camp before connecting to Australia on Monday. Head coach Paul True will also be missing team manager Steve Sewe, who was absent at the Safaricom Safari 7th in the Gold Coast Travelling Party, and the position has been taken up by assistant coach Felix Ochieng. And finally, in athletics news, Zimbabwean athlete Marco Mambo has won the 68-kilometer Legends Marathon from Bishu Stadium to East London in the Eastern, Prov- in the Eastern Cape. 
He finished the race in just more than four hours, followed by South African athletes Elias Mabona as well as Peter Mtumbi. The ultramarathon includes a 68-kilometer race from Bishu to East London, a half marathon which is a 21.1-kilometer race around East London and a 5-kilometer fun run. Mambo has attributed his success to hard work and dedication. Since after Comrade, I went back home and prepared for this race. I didn't run any race, but I was just training, preparing for this race. So when I arrived here uh, on, on Friday, I just noticed all the top athletes like me, they are here. So I, I said to myself, this is comrade as well. It's, it's just the same like comrade. So I must run the way I, I used to train, not to wait for the guys, but the way I used to train. That is the way I, I run today. Those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, a trial of Shendewani begins in the city of Cape Town in South Africa today. And the threat of hunger is tracking Ebola across affected West African nations as the disease kills farmers and their families, drives workers from their fields and creates food shortages. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine at the Sa for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bumgard, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Show Me the Way by Papa Wemba. Papa,